Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer Aaron Comas. Originally from Dallas, Texas, Aaron is an extremely versatile drummer with a wide range of influences and playing experiences, including his ongoing work as a founding member of Grammy-nominated funk rock band Spin Doctors. With a total of 10 million albums sold and over 1,500 live shows under their belt, and all four original members intact, 2018 marked their 30th year. Aaron has also spent a decade-plus in the touring band of Joan Osborne. In 2017, Aaron appeared on new releases by Joan Osborne, Rachel Yamagata, James Maddock, Willie Nile, Garland Jeffries, Chris Bergson, and German platinum-selling artist Marius Westerhagen, to name a few. He has also worked with Bilal, Edie Brickell, Chris Whitley, Mark Cohen, Roswell Rudd, Ivan Neville, and a host of others. Aaron has also been active as a band leader since his 2006 debut recording, Cat Skills Cry, this was followed up with Beautiful Mistake, Blues for Use, Aaron Comas Quintet, Live 2016, and most recently, Sculptures. To find out more about this episode and all the episodes that we've done over the last three years, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really helps us grow. Hey everyone, we're doing a donation drive in the month of May here at Working Drummer Podcast. A donation on PayPal or Patreon will enter you to win some great stuff from our sponsors, including a crushed snare drum, a stick and accessory package from Vader, a set of drum heads of your choosing from Aquarian, a pair of in-ear monitors from Session Ace, the new book, Beyond the Beats, Rock and Roll's Greatest Drummers Speak by Jake Brown, or a Working Drummer Podcast t-shirt. Donating $10 or more on PayPal or $5 a month or more on Patreon will enter you to win one of these prizes. Winners will be chosen at random on June 1st. If you donate on Patreon, this promotion includes all of the existing incentives there. Visit WorkingDrummer.net and look for the PayPal and Patreon buttons along the right side of the homepage. Thanks to all the participating sponsors for providing these great prizes. And thank you in advance for helping to keep Working Drummer Podcast going strong. A lot of us are using in-ear monitors on a more regular basis than we could have anticipated even just a few years ago. Unless you have that big artist gig that provides all the free gear that you need to do your job, you are responsible for the cost of your own in-ears, and the price is often too high for great-sounding in-ears. Session Ace is a company that makes great-sounding ears at a very reasonable price. Zach and I have been putting these in-ears to the test in real-world settings for many months, I can honestly say these are the best-sounding in-ears I've used. For only $199, you can own a set of ESAs or quad driver headphones. For the dual drivers or ESTs, it's only $99. The frequency response is better than any of the lower-level competitor products and is either equal to or better than other higher-end products. And lastly, the accessory package that comes with every order has everything you would possibly need from cable extensions, adapters, as well as a large assortment of ear tips to fit your ear. You can check all these out at sessionace.com slash working drummer and see some of the other products that they have to offer. So let's get to it. Here is my conversation with Aaron Comas. We have a whole lot of shows coming up. We tend to do a lot of, uh, we mostly do fly dates. I mean, every now and then we'll go out and do a tour, but 
we've kind of settled into this thing where we fly out and take good gigs, mostly on weekends, fly out, come back, you know, it, it's great. So we have, we have a good amount of shows coming up this summer. And then I'm flying up. I'll be going to Germany for the month of August to do a tour with an artist named Marius Westernhagen, who's a, he's kind of an iconic rock star over there in Germany. And um, he's great. And I've been playing with him. I guess I've been with him probably six or seven years. I've done his last three records. And most of the band is actually New York City guys. So it's a, it's really fun. So I'll be headed over there for a while at the end of the summer. And, uh, you know. I remember years ago, somebody was telling me it's like all these, uh, especially like New York jazz musicians, would spend the winter months in Europe and the summer months in New York. Is that still a thing? It really depends. I mean, I think, you know, everybody's different. I mean, I you know, I tend to do more in my career, even though I play a lot of jazz and I put out my own sort of jazz-based records. Yeah. Um, I tend to do most of that stuff with my band in town. I don't really tour a lot with that. And most of the touring I do, in my case, I do a good amount of my traveling in the summer, actually, because the spin doctors tend to do most of our gigging in the summer months. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I'm, and I, you know, and I'm usually over in Europe once a year with this guy, Western Hagen. So I don't know. I mean, but that is true. I mean, I know a lot of guys that are over in, over in uh, Europe a lot. I don't know if it's always the winter. I mean, there's, cause there's, yeah, there's so much. There's so much going on over there. There's so many different jazz festivals and right. stuff. So, right, right. But you know, let's let's face it. Any any working musician is is always on a plane, always at an airport, and uh, find themselves in Europe quite a bit. So it's, it's yeah, one of the yeah. one of the. Yeah. It's it's been interesting how how things have changed. That how people are 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 making a living, and how just the the, the way people consume music online has kind of dictated how we all work and whether it's yeah. uh, and it, uh, now I think there's, there's more touring going on for some people. Uh, there's more home recording going on for some people. So it's, it's really changed the landscape overall that some hard and fast rules that maybe were the norm 10, 20 years ago are less. So, it's, you know, there's so many factors. Well, I mean, I, you know, look, the one thing that, it, that, there's no question about it. The whole recording, the way the recording industry works, and maybe the way touring is set up around that, it's changed a lot in the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, but the one thing that is completely the same as it's always been is like, it's pretty hard to be a, a working musician without spending a lot of time on the road. I mean, it really is. Unless you're just, you know, just dedicating 100% of your time to studio work, right. which, which is possible, but even that is. I mean, I mean, I work in the studio a lot, but it's different. It's different now than it used to be. It used to be, you know, you'd get called to do a record and you'd, you'd set up shop at some big studio for two weeks, you know, and, and yeah. these days, these days, I mean, there's more, more records are being made than ever just because of the way things are, but you know, budgets are smaller. Records are done often in a couple of days as opposed to, yes. you know, it used to be we'd, we'd hang out for two weeks and do basic tracks with artists. And now it's kind of like two or three days, you know? So, but as far as the touring, I mean, you've all we've always done that. I mean, it's kind of the bread and butter of, of any musician. And but the difference, what I was starting to say, the difference is like, for instance, take the Spin Doctors. I mean, we you know we came out in the nineties. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the in some ways in the peak of the record industry, you know. And back then, you know, you put out a record, and it was kind of like, okay, we got to go out on the road and promote the record. It was all about like, let's go out on the road and try to sell the record. And and that whole thing is really kind of it's not really about that anymore because there's not, you know, you, I mean, bands sell, 
the best the best chance a band has to sell records is really from after the show, you know, to their fans directly. You know, it's just it's just the landscape has just changed so much. So, but you know, we've always any musician you talk to is always at some at least at some point in their career spent a lot of time playing gigs, and it's kind of like yeah. you know it's what we all it's what we all started doing. When we it's like think about it when you first pick up an instrument, it was all about playing your instrument, and and eventually you wanted to play in front of people and. Right. And you know it's it's so I think you know it's you have to you have to really look. There's, there's obviously a negative side. It's real easy to get go down that road, but I think that's a dangerous road to go down. You have to yeah. you have to you know. And I think that although it has become harder for for I think musicians to earn a living, and, and particularly for younger, less established artists, you know whether you're a a band or or an artist or a sideman or whatever, it's it's changed, but. You know, the one thing that I will say that has always been the case that will never go away is, you know, you got to work really, really hard, and you got to go out right. there and play, and right. and that's all. That's all. That's and people want to hear music, you know, and so I, I don't know. I'm positive because I feel like there's so much great music going on. You know, the whole live music scene is thriving, and the, and the recording, the amount of good music being recorded is also thriving. It's just you just have to come about it. At a different way now when you're when you're thinking about um, how you're going to earn a living doing it. I, I, I agree. It's so funny that uh, there's two different schools of thought. There's people that are embracing the changes and seeing the trends and kind of finding ways to to find work in, in the in the way the industry is 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 doing things and and really excited and like this is like a new. Uh, exciting time for music and, and there's so much stuff going on and there's creativity that can be done uh, in so many different ways and and then there's people that I think are are resistant for, for one reason or another or maybe they had success uh, in a different era and so they're kind of holding on to that and they're yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing frustration from them because um, well, it's not the same you know I mean, think about it. In, in, in some ways, it's always been like that. You always, yeah. it's always <laughs> the true. older generation. It's always the older generation of people that are the complainers. And they're always <laughs> talking about the, the good old days. And I Get off my how lawn. Great it was. <laughs> and it was so great back then. And when we were doing this, and, it, and it, it's always been like that. And I think that's just a. I mean, it's just a, it's the wrong attitude. I mean, listen, I just turned fifty. You're not going to hear me talk like that. I could be like, "Oh man, it was so great back in the '90s when the records, <laughs> you know, record companies had all this money." But I'm grateful to have been. I'm grateful to have been able to do that. But we're just in a different time now, and I yeah. think rather than going down the negative path, which is so easy to do, it's really easy to blame the industry or changes or whatever for for lack of like work. If you're not, you know, but yeah. you can't do that. You have to. You have to kind of reinvent and, and stay fresh. And I think this just keeping a positive attitude is such an important thing in, you know, first of all, an improvement as a musician, which to me has always been the number one goal. Yes. Because if you get dark and if you get dark, you're not going to be able to do that. And yeah. also, it, also to be able to sustain in the music industry, you really have to stay positive. You really do. Because, and I, I get it. It's easy to go down that road, but you, you got to fight that because it's not going to get you anywhere. No, and people sense that, and and they thrive. Uh, you know, they they feed off that positive energy, and I think that that, along with skills and everything else that you bring to a gig or whatever situation, people like to work with other people that have that positive energy, uh, for sure. A, a friend, Absolutely, a friend of mine, uh, a songwriter friend of mine, loves to work with Eddie Bayers here in Nashville. 
because he's uh-huh. like Eddie is always it's like your number one. It's like he's so excited to be working with you that day. I'm like, right. I, I love that, man. That's 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 really yeah. Cool. Well, I mean, you listen. I mean, whatever you bring into a room is so important. Whether it's in the, especially in the studio, you know. Yeah. When you're when you're working close with people, and you know, if you got a bad vibe, I mean, it's just going to ruin everything. And it's the same thing on the road. I mean, nobody wants to okay, hang, yeah. hang around in a bus or a van or backstage with somebody that's going to be negative. So it's very. I mean, first and foremost, you have to have the talent and play well. But it's there's no question. I mean, bringing a positive attitude and a good vibe to wherever you are, you know, people want to be around that. And I've I've seen such I've seen incredibly gifted, you know, musicians who have just had a hard time because of their negative attitude. And it's just like, you know, if you don't want to take a gig, don't take it. You you know what you're getting into. Yeah. You know, some gigs pay, some gigs are first class travel and great money and five star hotels and some gigs might be getting the van and you know, not get paid and very well and but you know, you said yes. So if you're gonna agree to do something, I think you should put the same the same positive spin and the same right. energy into that. It's all the same. You you decide what you want to do and what you don't want to do, you know? Exactly. I I think there's a couple uh, different avenues, a di- couple different points. I, I just want to uh, expand upon what what you're saying here. I think one important thing, a, a philosophy that I feel has has worked well for me, has been when I say yes, that means I'm going to be there a hundred percent, music wise, prepared, preparedness, attitude, everything. Uh, on the other side of it, though, before I say yes, or before, uh, as as the year progresses, or or whatever, to, to try and figure out who it is, if if this luxury is afforded me, uh, who it is I want to work with, or what it is I want to do, um, and, and and so I think it's important, like you said. Figure out what it is that you want to do with your career. Figure it out. Figure out what kind of music you want to play. Who the, the kind of people that you want to work with. Uh, so you don't find yourself in that situation where you're just putting on some sort of act. <laughs> yeah, you know I agree with that 100. percent I mean, it's very important to uh, have goals, set goals for yourself. You know, I did that from a very young age. I mean, and I'm a musician that's always really had an equal interest in a lot of different types of music. And yes, you know, I've always been equally into like growing up. I mean, I was just as much into Led Zeppelin as I was into like Miles Davis and John Coltrane, and, right. and you know, all and all kind of stuff. So when I, you know, I came, I kind of came from equal jazz background as as rock, you know. And uh, when I moved to New York, I was basically kind of open to like I wanted to be a studio musician I wanted to be a jazz musician and I wanted to be in a rock band and I and I and I you know and I, I'm still that guy and you know here I am 30 years later and I'm actually doing all three exactly it took a long it but you can't always do all three and you have to yeah. kind of you kind of have to like set those goals and then also you have to like seize opportunity you know if you see an opportunity that suits you creatively um and you're ready for it, then go for it, you know? But definitely, I agree with what you're saying. Like, it's a big mistake to to take something that that you're not going to feel good about, just maybe for money, because, mm. I mean, I, every now and then, you know, everybody has to do that a little bit, but, like, yeah. you can wake up five years later and you've been doing the same thing and you're nowhere. And, and that's... I always made a, a, a real priority to not do that, and I still do, because... You know, you only you only have so much time, and, and uh, right. it's very important. It's very important to make 
to, to make good choices, like you were saying. Yes. I, I have something very much related to what we're talking about uh, that I had kind of prepared to ask you uh, 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 later, but I want to ask it to you, ask you now. Um, so you've done some work with uh, Joan Osborne, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, as well as Billy Ward has worked with her and getting ready to talk to Billy uh, in a couple weeks, as a matter of fact. And um, so here's, here's the thing. I've, I've kind of written this out. Um, so you, you guys both have this kind of artist's sensibility when it comes to your approach to drums. Like, this is my art. This is my craft. Um, right. And, and, it's, and it seems like it's really served you well in the type of career that you've created and, and you want to continue to create. Many musicians and, and, and those who want to be working musicians, working drummers, will find themselves in compromising situations uh, just to stay busy as musicians and to stay, keep the bills paid. What advice would you give to people that are, are trying to maintain a creative vision, an artistic vision of their, of what they want to accomplish in their career? Well, I mean, that's a, you know, there's a lot of answers to that. I mean, one is to, again, like we were saying before, kind of know what you like, yeah. have an idea of what, what kind of things you're really interested in. And I think that, again, by, by trying to play with people that you really like playing with. I mean, I mean, I've been lucky that I've, I've been involved in so many situations that are very creative. Like, you know, being a member of the Spin Doctors for all these years, mm-hmm. you know, early on, early on, I was in a situation where I was completely able to create my own voice and, and just be me. Nobody was telling me you have to do this, you have to do that. And that's, you know, that's the ultimate creative situation. At the same time, you have to always respect the music you're playing. So even though I may come from an equal jazz background as I do rock and funk and all that stuff, I wasn't going to go on the Spin Doctors and start playing like, you know, I'm going to respect that music and, and do do my thing inside of it. Same thing goes with, you know, yeah, I, I took over Jones gig after uh, Billy had been there for a while. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and Billy is a great, great creative drummer. And, and he, you know, it's interesting when you go on to a new gig. I've been with Joan now for, all, for over 10 years, and I've played on her last three records. Right. And it's, it's great. And uh, she's been one of my favorite artists to play with. And, you know, you listen, it was interesting because I was going through tapes, learning, the, learning her material, and listening to the version of the records, and listening to the the live shows with Billy, and there were a couple couple live shows with, with Sean Pelton because he played with her. Wow. And you're listening to this, you're thinking, oh shit, okay, so I'm not, now I'm going to be the guy. <laughs> what am I supposed to? And, and what I've realized over the years is, you you can't go in, you have to go in there and be yourself. You know, yeah. like I'm not going to go in there and be Billy or Sean or even the guys on the record. But what you have to do is you have to respect. Really, as long as you respect the music and play for the music 100. percent and be yourself, and that's what, that's what the kind of artist that I like to play for. I like to play for artists that are going to know that I'm going to come in there and I'm going to respect their music and their yeah. thing, but yeah. I'm going to be me. Yeah. And so, like, you know, those are the kind of people that I want to work with. I don't want to work with somebody. I've done a few gigs over the years where you, know, you have to play exactly like this or do that, and I, I don't like doing that. It's not, like, it's not my thing. But luckily, I have enough. I know how to... I, I come from a, when I'm playing anything, you know, song related, singer songwriter, pop, whatever you want to call it, I'm very much about the song. I, I want to play the song. So I'm not the kind of drummer that's going to go in there and play a bunch of flashy stuff, unless it, unless it's calls for it, you know, but 
So I've been fortunate to have the trust of the artists that, that use me. And, and, um, and because of that, I think I've developed some really cool long lasting relationships with some great people like, like Joan Osborne, for instance. So yeah. I don't know if that really answers your question. It's a tough no. question, but I think, you know, really you just have to be you, but really, really, really first and foremost, respect the, the, the music and the vision of the artists you're, you're working with. It sounds to me like it started as a seed. It starts small. You cultivate that over time. And so our conversation now, April 30th, 2018, is it is a culmination of many things that you've done over the last 30 or more years and when when Joan needed a drummer she's like oh yeah I know Aaron and 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 10 years ago everyone even just even 10 years ago people knew who you were what you do what you did and know your sound so I think that at this point in your career you kind of have that advantage what you have the advantage of when people hire you, they know what your skill set is and what the what flavor you bring to the table. Um, but not to get too far off the topic, which is more of an artistic approach or a creative approach, and I, I think that has to do with a lot of the the styles that you've talked about, uh, where your interests lie in improvisational music and other things like that. And it seems like an artist like Joan is somebody that likes to surround herself with, with, with that type of musician as well. Definitely. Joan really likes, uh, I mean, first and foremost, Joan wants a really deep, heavy time kind of pocket. She's got a really great sense of time herself and she's kind of feels time in a certain way. So, you know, first and foremost with her, it's about that, giving her a really solid feeling group. But she's very open and very creative, and, and, and she loves she loves having moments in her music that, that open up. And uh, so she's, she's an artist that really, as long as you respect, like most great artists, as long as you respect them and give them what they need, they want, they, they want you to be creative. And if people want you to bring something to the music. That's why, yeah. I think that's why ultimately, that's why I think ultimately it's so important to be yourself. I mean, a lot of people go down the wrong path. We all emulate people. We all have our influences. That's how we ultimately get our own style. But I think ultimately what, what an artist, when somebody calls you to play on their record or, or be in their band or whatever, they, they want, they call you because they think that you're going to help make them sound better. I mean, it's like when I, I have my own band now and I call, mm -hmm. I pick them, I pick the musicians that I, that I know are going to make, me sound better. They're going to make my music sound better that I'm going to feel comfortable mm -hmm. making music with. So that's why, like, you think of the best drummers and a lot of people have this preconception that, like, being a, a studio guy is this, like, oh, yeah, they're, they're boring. They're going to, they know how to play with a click and they just play boring stuff. But the truth is, if you really look at, if you really investigate a little bit, it's the complete opposite. It's people that actually can go into a session and learn something and right away come up with something no matter how simple it is or complicated or whatever right. can come in can come in and really add something to the music i mean jim keltner is the ultimate example i mean he's one of the weirdest quirkiest most unique drummers ever and he's one of the most recorded drummers ever but he's far from meat and potatoes you know what i mean yeah so but and, and it comes it comes down to uh more than just the performance it comes to like being able to understand a sonic landscape and and choose well, things that's a huge part of the studio, making the, you know, and especially 
you know, more than ever now, like we've touched on before, how it's so often you get called in to make a record and people want you to, you know, they want, they want to do it in two days. So right. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. You got to kind of do what you used to be able to do in two weeks, yeah. in two days. So it's about, because you don't want the record to sound like it was made in two days. So you have to really like, it's about making quick decisions, understanding sonics, you know, being able to bounce around, tune your drums differently. There's so many things, having relationships with engineers. And I'm lucky that I have my own studio and I have a great engineer, Roman Kloon. We do a lot of records in my studio. And it's a, it's a great situation because we have such a chemistry and a relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, and in, in really quickly, I can completely change the sonics of my sound. And, and like the artist might not even, it's not, it doesn't matter. They don't have to know, but they'll, they'll look at me and be like, wow, what did you do? This sounds, this is great. And, you know, you don't have to sit there and explain it. You just have to do it. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Well, what, what, I mean, we all, we all know how to practice. We all, we have the books, we have the videos, we have, we've got YouTube, we've got teachers uh-huh. and, and we're developing, we're really developing this skill set. But what is it that we can work on or what is it that someone can work on that's interested in developing a palette of tones and sounds and tunings? Well, first of all, nothing helps that like experience. I mean, it's, it's hard to, mm-hmm. with no experience, it's hard to be, it's hard to be 20 years old. <laughs> you could have all the chops in the world, fresh out of Berkeley or whatever, and, and, but not have any experience in the studio making records and, and just think I'm just going to show up with my fancy kid and my fresh new symbols and I'm going to wail. But, you know, it's a whole different thing. But I, so I think it's really about, about, um, about getting that experience. But I mean, you know, list, I think listening to music, listening to records, if you're interested in, in becoming comfortable and, 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 uh, you know, working well in the studio, I think, you know, you have to listen to a lot of different types of records and kind of yeah. study what are these guys doing? How, okay, well, that's, how are the sound, sonics changing from song to song or from record to record? Or, or do they choose to keep the same? Maybe there was a record where they chose to keep a similar sound throughout, and that's kind of the whole sound of the record. Mm-hmm. Or other, like, like, like for instance, I'm thinking about, like, my career, like Spin Doctors, mm-hmm. Pocket Full of Kryptonite. That's our, that's our first record. I was young. I was 21 when we did that. Yeah. And we were, a, we were a band that had already played probably 500 gigs before we went in the studio. So we really had a sound. We had a yeah. voice individually and together. And part of that sound for me was that I had, you know, I had these Brady drums and I had like these, these snare drums that were tuned up tight and there was yeah. a big crack. Yeah. And that was, and, and although I did use a couple of different snare drums on that record, that was a real sound. If you yeah. listen to that record now, it's, it's part of the sound of the band and that record. So in that case, it was more about, uh, or like John Bonham, you, know, you listen to Bonham or mm-hmm. Stuart Copeland, or a lot of my favorite band drummers. There is a, a thread throughout. It's not like they're necessarily changing. Right. But then you take, but then you like listen, if you listen to a record I did with like, take Joan Osborne, for instance, I mean, like the last record we just did a, a uh, a tribute to Bob Dylan record. It's all these Dylan songs. And I'm, I'm on everything except for the very first song. But if you listen, you know, throughout the record, it's the, the sonics are changing. I'm using brushes or shakers or blastics or mm-hmm. sticks, you know, different, different sounding drums. So, but I think if you study these things with different, if you really listen to the records that you love and even records that you don't love, just you've got to take note of that stuff, you know, and then when you get the opportunity to, to start doing it, you do it. And, and, but also keeping in mind, you don't want to try to do it just to be different. It's really mm-hmm. about, you know, really doing what you think suits, suits the music. And, um, 
And, and in many cases, you're given that, that creative freedom to just make those decisions on your own. And, and if, you know, it's very possible that maybe the artist or producer won't like that decision and you'll quickly switch. But I think it's good right. to, I find that artists and producers like it when you take the initiative and give them something fresh. And usually they're like, wow, that's awesome. I love it. Let's go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Or they may, or they may have an idea or they may not like your idea. So it's just, it's about studying these things and then being able to adapt to the drop of a hat, you know, really quickly. And also putting your ego completely, I mean, in the studio, you got to put your ego away because right. if somebody, has to, if, you know, you may think you have the greatest instinct on a song, there's nothing, and that might be great. You might have a great part or a great sound, but it just might be something different than what they're feeling. So, you know, just throw it away and, and move on to, and to that, you know, try that. And I, right. I've often found that, I've found that in some cases I've come up with my best stuff when it was somebody else's idea, something that I maybe wouldn't have thought of. Sure, so sure. all these, all these, I, I, that's my best advice, quick, you know, in, in five minutes on how to kind <laughs> <try> of <laughs> get, exactly. get that. But that know, it's so funny. I mean, you, you say uh, you, you don't want to make the change just when it doesn't fit. I mean, I, I, I've been guilty of like, okay, we've used this snare drum on three songs so far. We're getting ready to record a fourth song. I should probably switch snare drums now. And it's like, it didn't even call for it, but it's like, uh, you know, just because you, you can't use the same snare drum on, on the whole <laughs> record, you know, you, you, you might. But also to your point, sometimes the snare, or I'm sorry, the, the drum sound W- would be consistent through a lot of records that I think we all yeah. grew up listening to. And I think a, a, a newer approach to recording and tracking has been to address each song differently with with drum tones, whether it's different types of muting that includes changing snare drums, maybe even cymbals, different things like that, using different brushes yeah. the way you described that seems to be not obviously not across the board 100%, but more the norm. And yep. it's, I, 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 would, I would venture to say that if you are working with young producers and engineers, that may be the way they see music being produced as the norm. And so be prepared oh. to really adjust. And, and and address each song the way a guitar player would. It's like, well, I'm going to use a different guitar and and a, this different set of pedals because because it's it's a it's a song. It's a new song. Absolutely. I mean, and again, your your people love it when you add to things. When mm-hmm. you when you your your job is obviously first and foremost is to keep time, but like you know, you're there to help make the song better and to create a mood and a. And and all these things that we're talking about, I mean, this, the drum sound is such a you can you can completely change the vibe of a song just by a, a snare drum switch, you know, going from a you know what I mean. So, I mean, and I think you're right. I think that it is becoming people like that and they want that. And you know, the other thing is in this day and age, we're we're inundated with music. You know, I mean, it's like more than ever. It used to be, you know, you didn't hear really a record unless somebody got a record deal and it was hard to get a record deal. There just weren't as many records being made and now everybody's making a record. You know, so it's, I, I think, and that's a pot, that, that from a creative point, that's cool because we have to, it's almost like we have to, I think, do more to make things stand out, you know, without without being silly about it. So, you know, the people's attention spans are so short, it's almost like you better get their attention right away. So, you know, I don't know. It's, 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 an, it's an interesting uh it's an interesting conversation, but you know, first and foremost, with all this stuff said, I mean, 
you got to serve the song. And it's all about serving the music, making these decisions. Don't do it just for the sake of doing it. Do it because it really is going to is going to contribute in a in a positive way. I also want to do a, a shout out to Krista Girolamo at Two for the Show for connecting us. Yes, um, thank you, Chris. I, I've been listening to your record the last few days. Also, uh, wonderful performance on uh, at the Blue Note that you sent me uh, the YouTube. I watched that last night, uh, oh, and, cool. and there's a lot of songs from that. Um, I think Berlin is an awesome song. I want to ask about that, and uh, and the Beast mm-hmm. is one of my favorite too. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, just the cool sounds uh, that that's going on, and and some of the tuning. So, anyways, could you tell us uh, more about that new record and some of the other solo records that you've done? Sure. Well, this is my latest one. Like you said, um, I you know let me back up a little bit. I, I started making my own records about ten years ago. Okay. And this is this is my I guess this is my this is my fourth full record of you know all original songs by me. In in between that, I did a live record and I also did a straight ahead jazz record. Mm-hmm. But my records are kind of like, um, well, I, for the most part, I write most of my music on the guitar. I play guitar and I uh, write most of my music on the acoustic guitar. So my first record, which was called Catfills Cry, came out in two thousand six, and I. And I did it with a great guitar player from Canada named Bill Dillon, who's phenomenal. He um, he played on most of the Roger Robertson's records oh, and wow. a lot of Peter Gabriel's stuff. And Jeez. he just I did a record I did a record with him in the late '90s with Mark Cohn, and I met him on that. And he's just this really, really atmospheric, very unique uh, style of guitar playing. And, and so when I, I I hadn't seen him in about ten years since we did this Mark Cohn record, and when I when I had when I finally got the material together and was thinking about who I wanted to get, I immediately thought of Bill. So I called Bill. He was in, and then I thought of uh, one of my favorite bass players, Tony Levin. So basically, I got Tony Levin and Bill Dillon, and we went up to Woodstock and did this record, this great record called Caskill's Cry. So that was kind of the beginning of me doing my own yeah. music. And then uh, you weren't messing around, went, man. Your first record. Yeah, no, well, you know, it's my <laughs> first one. You can't fuck around, right? Jesus, it's a great, it's 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 a beautiful record. I'm, I'm really proud. It's really of it. nice of you to give was, Tony a, a chance too. Uh, you know. <laughs> well, Tony was, and listen, I mean, he's like a hero. I mean, <laughs> I know. You know, the guy's the guy's phenomenal, and it, and it was so comfortable. He was so great. He, I mean, it, it was. You got to check out this record. It's Tony Levin sounds unbelievable on it. He, you know, getting to work with him. And from that, we ended up working on a lot of stuff together. He he started calling me for some stuff, and we did. It was just great. He's such a nice guy and such an incredibly, you know, just what a sound, man. I mean, oh my god, you know, yeah, amazing. So so that was great. And then and then I wanted to. We that was just a record project. We didn't do any gigs. We just I put out the record and. You know, it was great. And then about three years later, I got around to doing my next one, and I um, and I wanted to get a band in New York City, a band that I could start doing some live shows with. And I knew exactly who I wanted to get. I called uh, a really good friend of mine, an amazing guitar player named Teddy Kumpel. And Teddy uh, was a guitar player, and then Richard Hammond, who's an amazing bass player who I've known for a long time. Uh, we played, we do a lot of gigs together, and we play. Uh, we both been in Joan Osborne's band together for years. And all three of us share a lot of that. We're all very much into the same stuff. You know, we all come from kind of equal rock, blues, R&B, funk, 70s, 
soul background, but are also equally into improvisational music, jazz, and that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. so we made two records. We made the first one, which was called Beautiful Mistake, and the right. second one was called Blues for Yous. And, um, and we really developed a really nice thing. We play around a lot, um, and it's been great. So, for, so then I was you know, like, okay, I want to make a new record, but I wanted to kind of do something a little bit different. As much as I love those guys and as much of a chemistry as we built, I wanted to just, I want, and I'm going to go back to that. That's, that's like my core band, but I wanted to do something a little different. So I, um, I met this guy named Leon Grumbaum, who plays this crazy instrument that he invented called the Sam Chilean, yeah. which is featured, which is featured prominently on my new record. So I started, uh, I asked Leon, you know, let's get together in my studio, and I just wanted to kind of get together and do some sort of short improvisational pieces, just the two of us. And that was kind of the start of it. And we did those, and there's a couple tracks on the record that are based off those, which is the the title track, Sculptures, which is just an improvisation that me and Leon did. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then there's a song called Dogs, and a song called Wacky. And those are all just these short improvs. So that was kind of the, that was kind of one side of the record. And we would do these improvs, and we did a lot of them, and I kind of picked the ones I liked, and then we, we built a little bit of those. Um, and then the other side of the record is song, you mentioned the song Berlin, yeah, um, which is a song, a, more, a little more of a traditional songwriting approach, like my other records, which is which I wrote on the acoustic guitar. And on this record, it's me playing the acoustic guitar on, on that, yeah. and, um, and that's a really cool tune. And... Um, there's another song on the record called um, Falling Leaves, which is also acoustic guitar based. And then the third side of the record is is a session I did with um, at my studio with a really amazing piano player named Ollie Rothberger, who was fantastic. And he was in New York for a long time, and he recently moved back to London. And he was in town, and I knew he was in town, so I kind of built a session around him. And then through that, I called Leon to come in and also... Uh, great bass player John Davis, who's, who's on, you might know from Jojo Mayer's um, Nerd Band Nerve. He plays with, with uh, Jojo. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And we, and we had done a bunch of gigs together, me and John and uh, some other stuff. And I really like, I thought he would be perfect for this kind of style that I was going for. So I kind of put some songs, some ideas and some songs together for that session. One of, one of them being the beast, which you mentioned you really like. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that's, that's kind of the story of how the whole thing came together. And, and somehow all those, I took my time with the record. There was no pressure to when to put it out, and I recorded way more stuff than made the record. And um, and, and you know, I, I ended up trying, you know, breaking it down to thirty-seven minutes, short and sweet. I, I tend to like short records myself. And um, anyway, it's a it's a little different approach, and I tried to go for sort of a very, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of sort of atmospheric music, and I tried to, the, the thing on this record was as for my last records were like very much all about the composition and them starting out on the guitar and the idea of it sounding complete, even just on the acoustic guitar. This was yeah. more of an approach of like, I wanted this record to really just be all about the vibe. Like I wanted it to just have a, a real mood and a real vibe and be a little more beat, you know, drum and beat more beat heavy than my other ones were a little more of a modern sort of, sort of touch sonically. And, um, that's that's the deal. But but I think atmospherically, the Sam Chilean, which is a, what like a relative pitch synthesizer, is the way it's described. Yeah, um, uh-huh. it definitely gives that spacey something's going on there. But it's really yeah. it's really cool, and it, it it's 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 definitely for me listening to it, it. It made me think of something that I could put on in the background, 
or it is something that I could sit down and engage with. It, it was, well, it was, it's, it was it's, both. It's funny that you said, it's funny that you said that because that, that's exactly what I wanted to do. Okay. That's a lot of my, a lot of my personal favorite records yeah. are those kind of records. Like some, I'll name a couple of my very favorite records of all time, which to me are exactly that. You can just kind of chill out, listen to it yeah. or put it in the background, or you can really listen to it, you know, yeah. and focus on every note. Like for instance, uh, one, probably my very favorite record of all time is one of my very favorites is in a final way by Miles Davis. Yeah. And uh, I'm, it's just because it's one of those records you can just put it on and just chill and ha- you know not really pay attention, or you can focus in on it. And I'm also a really big fan of a lot of the records that a lot of the instrumental records that Daniel Lanois has put out over the yes. last decade. Yes, and I feel and I feel and that, that his whole thing was very inspiring on my very first record, mm-hmm. and really all the way throughout. And that whole idea that you're talking about is like it's not like these invasive things that are that are like coming at you, but but there's so much music to listen to. And that's really exactly what I was trying to do. So that's cool that you, that you said that. Oh, cool. It, what was that? I'm trying to think of the arranger that Miles worked with, uh, like uh, Porgy and Bess and... and Gil Spain. Evans? Yeah, yeah. Gil, I mean, yeah. that that whole collection is is very much like that. It, there's so much atmospheric stuff that's going on there. You know. Yeah. I mean, even like, you know, another one of my very favorite records, which it's... It, it, you know, is, is uh, a love supreme by John Coltrane. Another mm-hmm. record I, I listen to so often, and there's and even though there's so much coming at you on that record, I mean, you could, yeah, you know, it's also somehow it's also got this like just this cool vibe to it. I don't know. I mean, it is. I just love that kind. Of, you know, you it know is. what I mean? It's and it's it's not mellow by any means, but yet it's. Uh, it, it's so it funny. Like blowing your head over, either you know. I, it's, I wanted to be a jazz drummer so bad, uh, and I'm not. But so when I would listen to jazz, it was it was something I was trying to engage with at every at every level. I've gotten to the place in my life where I realize this is something to be enjoyed and to to, to maybe dig into it at a later point. But I find my son now, who's almost 16, listening to Love Supreme while he does his homework. I'm like, oh well, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'm like, how do you? Do, awesome. How do you do that? I can't, and I, I don't tell him you got to turn that off and do your homework because he's getting straight A's. So whatever it is, it's yeah, working. <laughs> good for him. That's great. Yeah, um, it's, it's, I mean, it's just a, such an amazing yeah, piece of work that you know, it's incredible. I want to mention one more thing yeah. about the other record. Um, you know, what you're talking about the vi- about the vibe of it, um, and, and and one of the big con- one of the guy, another musician that played on the whole record, and I had him come in later. Um, and he contributed so much of that sort of vibe, is um, that atmospheric vibe. Is a guitar player named Gray McMurray, who's just an incredible musician. He's a New York guy. And uh, once I had everything pretty much done, I had Gray come in on the at the end, and he he played on like I actually originally just had him come in on on a there was one song I wanted him to play on, and he played so amazingly. I had him play on everything, and he just um, so really a lot of that. It's hard, the thing that's cool about it too is sometimes it's hard to tell whether it's who's doing what, you know, on the record. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, a lot of, a lot of what you're hearing is definitely Leon, essentially, but a lot of that is probably great too. Okay. And he's got this very, very unique, um, very unique approach to playing the guitar that I, that I love. I'm, I'm just a big fan of, it's funny because I love like real meat and potatoes, rock and roll, you know, like, you know, Jimmy Page and mm-hmm. Pete Townsend. I, I love that spot guitar playing, but I, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of, you know, this a real atmospheric type of, um, guitar playing like which is why you know i called this guy bill dylan on my first record one of the things i love about teddy is teddy kind of does everything but he also he can really do that 
that vibe, the atmospheric thing, and then this guy Gray McMurray is just phenomenal as well. So I'm I'm a big fan of guitar players. I've, I've always I, mean, I play a little guitar too, but I've always yeah. loved loved creative guitar players. And, and that's you playing guitar on the song Berlin. That is me. Yeah, I'm playing that is you. guitar. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so I, I think a lot of drummers forget that they are musicians and can compose and create and do all these things. And it's like, come on, everybody, we can do it. Let's do this. It's, it's happened several times. And, uh, this is what the things that you've done is a, is a great example of that. When I hear some of the stuff that you do on these records, it, it makes me think of certain patterns that I've maybe worked on or messed around with or stumbled upon and said, man, that's really cool. When could I use that? I don't know any gig where I can really use that, but what if I wrote something based around that cool pattern? And so it made me think of a question I have for you is, do you have a compositional approach that's from the top down or the bottom up as far as what I mean is do you start with the drums and then write around it or do you start with something more melodic or harmonic structurally and then come in as okay now as the drummer what would I play behind that right well that's a great question and generally with the exception of this latest record I've always started with the song first so I started started on the guitar Okay. So I've not, I wouldn't I wouldn't even think about the drums. I, normally, I, normally when I write music, I don't the drums. I don't think about it at all because mm-hmm. I generally write on guitar. So like with all my other records, I would compose on the guitar, and then when it was time to, you know, get in there with the, with the other musicians, I would start thinking about the, how I was going to approach it from a drum point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, now on this record, I I flipped it. I took the opposite approach, with the exception of a couple songs like Berlin. And um, there's a couple that are that started compositionally, but like you know, like the song, uh, like the Beast. Yeah, I mean that basically that's basically a rhythmical pattern that I thought was cool. Yeah, and I had I had that dun 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 dun. It started. It just had a rhythm, and then I, you know, I came up with just a simple little bass line, and I threw it to John, and that that was basically it. I just showed the guys like, here's the vibe. It's this rhythm. Let's break it down. Let's build it up, and we'll. You know, we'll kind of break it up into sections, and, and that was basically it. You know, yeah. and um, and then and then like some of the some of the those improvisations that I did with Leon. You know, a lot of times it started. In fact, all three of the ones that made the record, which is Sculptures, Dogs, and Z- and Wacky, were all beats that I had that I wanted to do something with. Um, you know, Wacky was this 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 wacky beat, <laughs> and uh, and then and then Dogs was this this kind of like you know almost like a hip-hop kind of, um, it's just the same beat throughout. It was all about, it was, again, it was just all about this this big beat and getting the right sonics. A lot of that is as, as much, you know, as much the sound is really such a big part of that, you know. And um, and then Sculptures, the, the title track was really just, it was sort of a motif. If you listen to it, there's like these little, these little kind of motifs that I'm doing between the, with the bass drum snare and hi-hat. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really that was what it was kind of based on. I kind of keep coming back to this little idea, and that was really all that was, you know. So, so, um, but but generally, I do come from I do start from a compositional point. But I really wanted to I wanted to try something different on this record and and break it up and um, 
and then I like the results. Yeah, it's fun, man. It's fun. It's it, and and I notice as I'm going through your discography, uh, you know, there's a label under most of the records. It says it's jazz, uh, except right. for, except for beautiful mistake, and I don't know if that was your doing or if it was iTunes well, or what, whatever. What's but that it, under? It's under rock. Oh, okay. Huh. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I hate I hate labels. You know, well, that's my so like, that's, I, yeah. That's yeah my. I, iTunes asked you to label something, and I think you know the the good news is like, I mean, I I I I consider myself a jazz musician because mm-hmm. to me, all jazz means is that you're open to anything. To me, that the word jazz, I don't know what it really means, but to me, it just means that like you're you're always open to anything it could be anything it could go anywhere mm-hmm. so i have a jazz attitude with everything i play even if i'm playing a rock just like something straight i, I still like there's always that possibility so to me that's what jazz is that's the, the op- endless possibilities so yeah i consider my music jazz but it's not straight ahead jazz you know uh-huh. so you know I, I mean and and my my music has a lot of rock in it too so i yeah. i mean it's probably more instrumental rock than it is jazz but i just I put it under the jazz category because, especially today, I mean, if you look on out here and see jazz, it's so much, it's such a broad term now, you know? Yeah, and I was trying to figure out what to extract from that when I saw that label, and I'm like, I wonder, first of all, I wonder if you even knew that that was, a, that was the way that record was labeled, and I, I thought, you know, he probably doesn't, and who I, knows? I, I did know, actually, I did know, I did know, I, 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 oh, you did? Um, the distributor asked me what I wanted to put it under, and I said jazz. Oh, oh, but because I mean, it's like I mean, but be- sorry, beautiful mistake is is labeled under. Oh, yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember that. I don't remember that. You know, honestly, not, uh, I can't remember. I mean, uh, <laughs> that's. I mean, not to make a make, not to make an issue out of that that particular thing, but but it made me think about yeah. like all the 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 labels that we have for music and how you navigate through that as a musician trying to figure out it's like well what is it that i do or what can i bring to yeah. the table or if you're if you're more of a um, a composer or an artist or, or you're trying to go that route is it it is it uh i don't know does it get to the point where all these labels are just uh destructive to me, they mean absolutely nothing. But but for some but some kind of marketing, you know, people people have to put you in some sort of box from a marketing point of view. But for me, I, I pay no attention. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just music. And mm-hmm. and I, you know, if you want to break it down to the labels, I mean, like like we said before, I'm I'm influenced by all music, you know, and um and I and I I respect styles. Like I like I've, I mean, at this point in my life, I want to be completely free and just play like I play and. To me, labels are kind of meaningless. But you know, when you're when you're when you're learning how to play music, I mean, it's important to. I spent a lot of time studying different styles. Like you know, I grew up in Texas, and I right. I studied blues. I studied how to play. I played a lot of blues gigs, and I wanted to really understand how to play a shuffle the right way. Like I understand how to play a shuffle in Texas, or how do they do it in Chicago or Memphis, and mm-hmm. and really, I wanted to when I was on a blues gig to respect that. The same thing with jazz. I didn't want to show up on a jazz gig and sound like a rock guy. There's a certain touch. And you know, you have to, yeah. and same thing with rock and roll. I mean, I want to, I, I, I love playing rock and roll. You know, not everybody, not everybody can play all these styles because there is a, a real respect thing to understand right. these styles. Yes. But 
one of the reasons that I think the best artists, or at least the ones that I like to work with, are the ones that don't really think of it like that. And, um, and you know, again, just respecting the song. And, yeah. and you know, one of, the, one of the things that's so creatively fulfilling about my own band is that there is no label, you know? I mean, you can call it whatever you want, you know? Mm-hmm. They can call it, you know, but it's... Anything goes, <laughs> you know. There's, right, I, you right. know, a- absolutely anything goes, you know. So, where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com. Since 1988, NotSoModernDrummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. I started playing piano when I was about five. I took classical piano lessons, and I and, uh, got pretty good at it. And then I lost interest and wanted to play the drums. And I, I uh, basically told my, I was about nine, and I asked my mom and dad for to uh, get me some drum lessons. And I really just totally lucked out. They they called the local music store, Brook Mays, and uh, the local guy there was this this guy named Jack Iden. And that was my first lesson when I was nine. He, the first day I went in there, he taught me how to hold the sticks, traditional grip, which yeah. is why to this day I play traditional. And, and based, right from the get-go, we just did rudiments. And reading. So the first two years of my drumming life, from like 9 to 11, it was just a practice pad, and then eventually I got a snare drum. And it was just doing mostly like marching marching rudimentary snare drum um, books, and, and um, which was great. And I used to go in there you know, kicking and screaming because I wanted a drum set. And he, I would have my mom come in, and I'd be like, Mom, please you know, pick me up and tell Jack that I want, tell Mr. Iden that I Asked him if I can get a drum set, <laughs> you know, and he was like, you know what? I know you, you know, you, you might be mad at me now, but you'll thank me later. <laughs> and so I waited, I waited about two, three years before I finally got a drum set. And wow. by the time I got a drum set, you know, I was, I was ready for it. And, um, you know, I couldn't thank that guy enough. So, I, so after that, I stayed, I stuck with him for a long time. And then eventually uh, I got a drum set when I was about 11 and I, you know, I was playing along with records and all that stuff. And I got a great, I was really lucky to have great teachers after Jack, I would study with Rick Latham, who was in Dallas at the time. Oh, wow. And he had just put out his book. I was like 12. I was in seventh grade. He had just put out his book, Advanced Funk Studies. Mm-hmm. In, fact, it, in fact, it wasn't even out yet when I see it. It came out like, you know, I was going through it before it even came out. And, and, and uh, Rick really got me into, you know, that kind of stuff and also into big band chart interpretation reading, which was fantastic. And, uh, and then from there, I went. I was very fortunate to go to an amazing high school in Dallas called the Arts Magnet High School, and I was, you know, it was like music half the day, it's like LaGuardia High up here in New York. And I got to play in symphonic band, I got to play in big band, I got to play in small group, and there were some, some amazing musicians there at the time, and you know, so I was doing all that. And then Rick moved to LA and recommended me to a guy named Henry Oxtell, who was the head teacher up at North Texas State University. And Henry is phenomenal. He's taught all kinds of incredible drummers because um, he taught at North Texas. So, you know, wow. yeah. guys like Greg, Greg, Greg Bissonnette and Keith Carlock and Matt Chamberlain. And, you know, just the list goes on and on of guys that studied with him. And I studied with him through high school and we got into all kinds of insane stuff like 
Um, a book that I actually just went through again recently um, by Pete McAdamey. McAd- I'm sorry, I'm saying his name wrong. Now. <laughs> Pete McAd- Pete McAdamey. Okay. Peter McAdamey. He wrote, he wrote a book called um, Polysymbol Time. And it's now called Polyrhythms for the Contemporary Drum Set, I believe. But it's that was yeah. kind of my introduction. It's my introduction to like really crazy, uh, you know, metric modulation and polyrhythms, which is something that I really love to use in a in a musical way. You and, do and that a lot. The, the, I noticed that uh, at, on your Blue Note performance, man. There's a great, yeah. there's a great metric modulation thing, and the rest, you know, it, that's happening. There's great examples of that on there. Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of what I like in my own music. And again, that whole freedom, you know, and um, so that, I got really, exp- I got exposed to that really early, which was great. And and recently I've been, you know, going through a lot of, I've been digging out a lot of my old books and I've been practicing a lot lately. It's been really great to go really? through some of the old stuff. And cool. in a lot of cases, I'm like, I'm like amazed at the shit I was doing when I was so young. And I say, Jesus, I can't do it now. You know, I'm like, okay, I better learn how to do this again, yeah. you know? <laughs> So it's been, it's been, I've been revisiting a lot of the stuff I was doing really young, which has been really, really cool. Yeah. So that was, so that was basically my Dallas experience. And I was just so lucky to have, uh, not only so many great teachers, but you know, all these great, being at the school, there was this group of really, really amazing musicians and we would, you know, jam all the time on weekends and after school. And, and, uh, it was a really, really creative scene down there. So I was lucky to, uh, I'm really fortunate to have had that. That's amazing. That's awesome. And, and then you ended up in New York eventually? Well, I went to Berkeley for a year. Okay. Straight out of high school to Berkeley, and I studied with Tommy Campbell there, which was great. And I also studied with a guy named Ed Uribe, who was fantastic, who unfortunately passed away last right, year. Right, right. But they, but they were both great teachers. Uh-huh. And, you know, Ed, Ed had me doing a lot of Latin-type stuff sure. and ostinatos. Uh-huh. And then Tommy was just like, you know, had me doing all this insane, like, technique stuff. And, and um, that was kind of the period that I practiced like, you know, eight to 10 hours a day, every day for a year. And I really got my shit together that year. And, um, it was a, it was a great year of growth for me, you know, just practicing all day long and playing, playing with different people at night. And, um, so I did that for a year and then I moved back to Dallas for a year and I just played every gig under the sun for a year. And I studied, I went back and studied with my high school teacher, Henry Aspinall that year. And then I moved to New York. I was like, okay, I want to move to New York. And um, and I had heard about the new school here that had recently started a great jazz program. And I came up and visited, and I loved it. And I so I did that, and I studied with Bernard Purdy for a year, which was incredible. Nice. Yeah, and then you know through through the new school is where the, all the Spin Doctors guys met and they formed the band at school. And then in 1991 was. The year that uh, Pocket Full of Kryptonite, thank you, yeah. uh, came out. But I know you guys did some stuff leading up to that. Um, can we talk a little bit about that that ride and that that whole situation? And because sure. I can tell you, um, I, I remember when that record came out. Um, I was finishing up school i just started working in bands and you know working in some cover bands and that song the two princes was huge and every drummer their ears perked up like what's that what's that fill what's that lick what's that snare drum and i know that there's several times that you've been asked about it and you've demonstrated it (laughs) so 
don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I can tell you that um, it, it's something that that many of us have played. Um, and, and just a, qu- a quick story, I, I remember when I was working on the tune, uh, a friend of mine, a, a great drummer, I was like, man, it's like, I don't feel like I'm playing this pickup like very strong. I'm playing as a five-stroke roll, which I know that's how you play it. And he, and he goes, play it as a single-stroke five. And I did, and that was oh. the key for me to get this wow. strong, stronger, that as opposed yeah. to the five-stroke. Um, but anyways, um, it's so interesting because that's one of those songs that you can play the intro to just off the cuff, and everybody turns around and knows what song you're playing. Yeah, I mean, it's listen, I'm very grateful, obviously, for that. Um, yeah. We basically, the cool thing about the Spin Doctors was that we played almost five nights a week in New York City. Mm-hmm. We kind of took the opposite approach that everybody else was doing. And it seems like all, most other bands were just so, all they wanted to do was get a record deal, get signed, and people would be rehearsing every night, and they'd try to get their showcase. And yeah. we just basically, did the, we, we took the total opposite approach. We're like, we didn't really care about getting signed. Our goal was really we wanted to have our own sound. We wanted to write our own songs, and we wanted to make a living playing them. So we just decided let's just like, you know, we just booked every gig we could get. And I and so what happened was we, you know, there's no better way to develop your sound than playing in front of people. It's just something that we, anybody who's been doing this long enough knows that it's one thing to rehearse, and that's great. But something happens when you get in front of people. Yes. So by the time by the time we so basically just real briefly we played all the time and we kind of you know within about a year we had developed we had a big buzz around Manhattan and we were playing you know we had a really devoted following and you know people would come see us a lot and there was a scene you know there was another band called Blues Traveler who we yeah. used to play with a lot and Joan Osborne was part of the scene back then too yeah. it was just a really cool scene. And eventually, you know, one thing led to another, and we kind of had this undeniable thing happening. And so, so you know, we ended up getting a record deal, you know, without really trying. And um, by the time we went into the studio to make Pocket Full of Kryptonite, like I mentioned before, we had, you know, we had probably 500 gigs under our belt. So we had played those songs so many times that there was a real, you know, it was a real vibe happening. And, and luckily, we, um, you know, for instance, Two Princes, I mean, we captured it. I feel lucky because... First of all, it was recorded so well at the power station, you know, and um, we just kind of nailed it. I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, because I mean, believe me, it's funny because we used to put that song like considerably faster. Yeah. And I always thought it was, I always thought it was too fast. Yeah. I got to give myself credit. I got to give them, I'll take the credit. I was like, you know what? I really think we should, let's slow this tune, to, let's slow this song down. I think it'll just breathe better. The groove's going to be fatter. Yeah. I think the song's going to present itself better. And it worked. I mean, it's because I, you got, I, there's an old demo that we did, you know, we just saw like a little, you know, a little cassette at our gigs back then. And it's very fast, you know, and, and uh, something, you know, it just breathed. And I don't know, it's just, you know, it's, there's so many, there's so many things that come into play with a song like that to, for it to end up being such a big hit. I mean, you know, first and foremost, it's got to be a good song. Right? Two Princes is a, is a really strong song. But then it's like all the stuff we were talking about before. It's like how, you know, the tempo, the, mm-hmm. the sound you get, the mm-hmm. sound you get on the drums and the instruments, the, the arrangement, the way it's recorded. And, and really, I got to say, like that song, the stars definitely align. There's no question. From the, from the song to the tempo to the performance to the sound, it really, 
and it's very simple. We didn't, there's not a lot of overdubs on it. It's really just kind of like the four of us playing. And, you know, there's, there's only, there's not even any background vocals to the, to the refrain at the end. And it's just, it's, but it come because of that, it sounds massive, you know, sometimes it really is an example of less is more, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, so, but yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, I mean, to have a song like that, where people recognize the song from the from the intro is definitely pretty cool, and it's really just the I didn't put a lot of thought into that. I wish I could say I did. You know, it's just something that kind of, you know, over again, again, it's just something that developed from playing so many live gigs. You know, rather I don't know somewhere along the line, I just I probably did a bunch of different intros, but at some point I I must have just like stuck to that. You know, and um, you know, I, I don't really know exactly how it came about. The only thing I can think of, I tried to figure it out, and there's a Miles Davis record, I think it's Tutu, the Miles Davis record Tutu, it may even be the song Tutu, where there's, there's this rhythm that keeps coming up in the, in the middle of things. It's like, you know, it's like faster and a little different, but uh-huh. and it's also based, it's also based on the Bo Diddley beat and the 3-2 yeah. Clave. Right, three, two, clave. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put it together without really knowing for sure. I think it's some sort of combination of like Bo Diddley, three, two, clave beat, and this Miles Davis tune. Right, <laughs> right. somehow turned it, you know. And, yeah. and and the only the only reason I'm saying that is because I've been asked it so many times. I've tried to figure it out myself, and I put right. myself back in that time period. All those three things are all kind of in my life. So who knows? You almost work, have to you know? reverse engineer your thought process to figure out exactly. what was the impetus for this this thing. Uh, and it's, you know, I, I work with certain people from time to time who have, uh, have like had hits and they're early in their career and, you know, they, they perform it every night. And, and so often if I get to know the person well enough to, to be able to ask them, I'll say, so you've been playing this song for 20, 30, 40 years. How does that make you feel? And, Nine times out of ten, they're like, "I'm, I've, I've, I love it. I'm so grateful." Like this, and the way the industry works, it, it's, it's, it. Sometimes it takes that one song, that two songs, to, 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 to then create something that allows you to sustain a career, to then continue to be creative, to do the things that you envisioned when you first started. Um, well, exactly. I, I mean, I'm very grateful for it. I don't really get tired of it. I, I mean, I, I really enjoy. I can honestly say I really enjoy playing with the band. You know, it's still all four original guys, and and right. all four of these guys, all all of us are very much like lifers. Like, there's not like a weak link. I mean, everybody is busy on their own and practicing, and it's not like we're definitely not. If you come to see the Spin Doctors, it's not like like you get. Let's face it, you go see some of these bands from different eras, and they they're just there to collect a check, and it might be one or two guys from the band, and and often it just sounds kind of like you know whatever, like they're going through the motions. Yeah. But if you come see us, I mean, we're hitting. It's like we're we're not messing around, you know. It's yeah, like we get up there and we we throw down, you know. It's it's for real. So yeah. if it wasn't the case, I wouldn't want to do it. I wouldn't be fun for me if it was like half ass. So you know. So yeah. So I'm I'm psyched to play it. I you know it's it's I'm grateful to have to be in a band that had a couple of really big hits that can sustain us. And yeah. because of those songs, we go out and we do well, and we can do all the other stuff that we do in our shows as well. But but we have these songs that have, you know, enabled us to have a long career. So, and because of that, I, I think also the other thing that's so great is because of that, I can be a little more picky and choosy about other things I do. I'm lucky that I don't have to, I, I try to really just limit myself to fully creative music 
and taking gigs that I really feel good about. And I've, I've actually learned how to say no, which is, a, which is like a very difficult word for a, music, a musician to learn. Yeah. And I've had a lot of trouble. I've had many, I've had a lot of trouble saying no over the years. And I've learned like, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to say yes to everything. It's okay. Yeah. And um, because yeah. if, because when you do, if, if you do start doing, you know, overloading yourself too much and particularly with situations that don't feel good, yeah. That's how you get burnt out. And for me, again, it's like the number one goal is to is to keep getting better and to feel fulfilled and make good music and grow as a as a musician. So mm-hmm. the worst way to the worst way to kill that and burn out is by doing too much of things you don't like to do. So yeah, I get you have to make everybody's got to make a living, and we all are gonna you know there's nothing wrong with, with saying yes to things to pay the bills. But I can just say like. If you really want to be happy and you really want to have a good career, I think it's it's worth it to struggle a little bit. Everybody, we all you have to struggle, and it's worth it's, that struggle is worth it to reach the to get to a place where you want to be. Yeah. It really is because you're going to struggle. There's no everybody. I don't care on what level you get. At some point, yeah. you struggle. You know, yeah. that's part of it. You have to. Yeah, then I, yeah. yeah, then I should be freaking Vinnie Caliuta, man, because I tell you. <laughs> no, I hear you, and, and I think that's excellent advice, and it, and, and for me personally, I, that's something I really need to hear. Um, so I, that's, I love that. What's the last um, studio record you guys have put out? Was that t- t- 2017 with Spin Doctors? The last Spin Doctors record was uh, If the River Was Whiskey, uh, okay. which was, I think... I don't know, it was a couple of years ago. Uh huh. Probably going to do a new one, do one this this year. Yeah. How, how many? Can you guesstimate how many shows you guys are doing per year? A year? Yeah. I about I'd say you know thirty to forty. Mm-hmm. It's pretty reasonable. It's pretty you know it's like it's uh, it's hard too because we're all busy. We try to we try to you know make ourselves as available as we can, and we yeah. uh, we take the gigs that make sense and. Um, and it's great. And we're going to, believe it or not, this fall is going to be our 30th year. Of right, the right. It was, it All was, the original members. Yeah. Yeah, you had a, I think you had a few changes here and there, but, but everyone's yeah. back together. It, it, like, you know, mid-90s, it was about a four- or five-year period where things got fucked up, you know, as, you know, whatever, normal shit. And uh, what did we've you say? been intact. What did you do, Aaron? What? What did you say? To <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do any of this. <laughs> I've been there the whole time. Mm-hmm. I right, never, right. But I have missed. I have actually missed a few gigs. I got to say, like, like you know, I kind of ran into the situation over the last three or four years, where you know, because I'm doing a lot of other stuff, where you know, it's tough. It's getting into sort of like a little bit of like the the, uh, the juggling aspect of the music business, and you know, and having priorities and commitments. And it got to the point where, with the Spin Doctors, basically, if one person couldn't do a gig, we just always said no. Yeah. And there were a lot of, we've listened, we've, there's been a lot of really good paying gigs that we said no to because somebody couldn't do it. And I never wanted to be that guy. So basically, there was a few situations, there's been a few situations over the last couple of years where I was already booked on other tours, other gigs that I didn't want to lose. And, and I just decided, you know what, guys, I can't do this, but I want you guys to do it. I don't want anybody to, you know, it's not, you know, it's, it's always hard when you take one person out of the out of the equation, but I have missed a few gigs. I've had, so I had a few guys sub for me. It's only been about five or six, but Sean Pelton did a couple and, um, Van Romain did a couple. In fact, Van's going to fill in for me on a couple shows in August when I'm in Germany. Mm. So, you know, and I hate to do it. I really hate to do it. Um, but you know, the show, the show goes on and, um, 
But it's interesting. Like that's always been one of the di- most difficult things. I think for a lot of any musician that's you know relatively busy, it's the whole aspect of juggling you know different things can be a complicated one. And and yeah. you know, let's face it, you can't do everything. You know, so Spin Doctors, I always try to prioritize. It's my band. I don't. I don't like. I don't like. Uh, I prefer not missing a gig. And um, but you know, like for instance, this gig in Germany that I do, Marius Westenhagen. It's a really great gig. I really love it, um, and I know how it is. If you miss it, you know, I don't care how much. He can tell me I'll never play with another drummer again. You're the best. I love you. He's, that's what he says to me. I'll never play with another drummer again. You're the best. But you know what? I know how it is. If I miss a, a tour, guess what? I'm out. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've seen that happen so many t- I've seen that happen so many times to people where they really yeah. think they're so, like, they, it's their gig and they got it. And as soon as, you know, you make a decision not to do it, so you have to, and I realize there may be a point where I won't be able to do that anymore. I, I'd like to try to do we all want to. We all want to keep all of our gigs, but sometimes you have to make decisions, um, and uh, that, that can be a complicated thing. But you, you know, you just have to try to use your best judgment and you know do the best you can with that kind of stuff. I, I tell my kids all the time. I said one, one of the like the main key components of being an adult. The difference between adults and kids is that as an adult, making decisions is you have to make decisions every single day. And being in the music business is is just another one of those, like a fine-tuned aspect of that. You have to make decisions, and you never know if it's the right one. It, it, it's, it's hard. It it is hard, and and you know hindsight. It's, sometimes there's kind of, not sometimes there's not a right answer either. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. not. You know, and you just got to do what you what your instinct. And the and the other the other big part of the equation for me is that. You know, I have a daughter. I have an 11 year old daughter, mm-hmm. and I want to spend as much time with her as possible. And mm-hmm. and I've start one of the one of the main reasons I will say no to gigs sometimes is because I want to hang out with my. I look at my calendar I'm like shit. I'm the rest. I'm like right now. I look at my calendar like it's pretty busy throughout the end of the year, and I see there's a weekend here, or a weekend there, or a day here that I'm yeah. not doing anything. And like so, you know, I want to like I want to see my daughter that weekend. I want to spend as much time. I see her all the time. You know. I'm going to pick her up at school in 45 minutes. But, you know, that's a big part of the equation, too, for me, is, like, I've always, as busy as I am, and it's my bread and butter, I've always made a real point to to make sure I have that time. I don't want to be wake up, you know, in eight years and feel like I missed that. And it's 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 hard because, you know, this is what we do. This is how we make our living. We have to raise our family and pay our bills, and, and it's the only way we know how to do it. So you can't you can't not work, but you also have to, at least for me, I've just made that decision where I'm going to, there's certain things I realize I'm not going to be able to do right now. Like, look, I'd love to take my own band and go to, go tour Europe and, you know, or do more tours of my own band. But it, like, it, it's just another, I look at how busy I am and be like another month, you know, not, not away. So you kind of, you know, you, you, you have to kind of look at the whole picture and I've made certain decisions based on that because, you know, she's my top priority, you know? And, um, right. Right. And, and, I mean, there's no question. It's, it's easier to it's easier to be a single guy with no kids in the music business. You know, I mean, a lot of the guys out there that it's true. A lot of the guys out there that are that you see that are like just always on the road. I mean, they don't have kids. Right, right. They don't, and that's you know, it's easier. I I wouldn't trade it for the world. I love my daughter more than anything, but it's it's a uh, you know you and I've made a decision to it's, it means more for me to spend time with her. But it's uh, you know it's 
it's just one of those things, you know. It is. It's something that I think you have to decide what 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 is the life that you want to live. What is the lifestyle yeah. you want to create? And it's different for everyone. So I can't sit here and say, yeah, there's hey, no right or wrong. There's, right. You know, whatever. It's all good. I mean, I'm listen. I'm gone all the time, but I, you just have to make that time you're here really count. And uh, but anyway, I've, been, I've gotten a lot better about like you know I I, I can't do it this weekend. Sorry, you know. I try to always practice stuff that I'm not good at. Um, <laughs> I feel like I feel like when you're practicing, you should work on stuff that you suck at. Yeah. And then when you play, when you play, you should focus on stuff that you're good at. And oh, at the same yeah. time, at the same time, push the envelope, you know. Uh-huh. But so I've been practicing a lot, and I basically I have a practice pad, like you know, right here. You can hear it. Yeah. And I, right in my kitchen, right in my kitchen, I have a practice pad, and I have a bunch of books. I have syncopation, I have advanced snare drum studies. I have uh, 14 modern contest solos, John Pratt. I have Stick Control. I got all these books, portraits and rhythms. And I, so I spend, it, I, I try to do at least a little bit of my pad every day at home. Yeah. But then when I have time, when I have time to go to my studio, um, I've been working on, I've been busting out a lot of old books. Like for instance, in the last couple of months, I've been putting a lot of time into that uh, Pete McAdini book, Polysymbol Time. And through that, through that, it kind of reminded me a lot of things. It opened up a lot of doors. And I started, I do, there's a lot of ways that I like to use the book Syncopation for independence. So I've been doing a lot of that. And, and basically, that's what I do when I practice. I work on, or things that I've been having trouble with, or things that I maybe used to be able to do great when I was at Berkeley that I can't do now that I'm trying to, you know, just, it's mostly, it's mostly technical weird, four-way independence, complicated, hard things that I suck at or that I need improvement. And and by doing it, you know, it's been exciting because I've really felt, you know, I've been doing a lot of practicing on this kind of stuff since the new year, and I really, I feel it. You know, it's like anything. If you, you know, a little bit, and I don't, I don't go there. I'll practice an hour. I don't, you know, I don't have the time to do eight hours a day like I used to, but I find if I really focus hard for an hour and work on things that I need to work on, and, you know, you break these barriers, and by the end of the hour, you're doing something you weren't doing before. Then you come back the next day, and all of a sudden, you, you do this. So that's basically kind of what I do when I practice. There's no reason for me to practice stuff that I'm good at and feel like, you know, it's easy to, like, ah, I feel great, but yeah, right, it doesn't right. serve a lot of purpose. Self-affirmation. So let me ask you just real quick. Can you give me an example of what you do in syncopation? You mentioned that you work out of that. So, like, can you give us one example of something that Yeah, that well, for instance, like, for instance, uh, there's a lot of ways to do it on the um, just on the practice pad, like with just a third run. Yeah, let me open it up. So, for instance, there's, there's basically these starting on page 38. There's like those seven or eight exercises. Those are really the only pages I use. So, for instance, um, an easy one. Can you hear that? A little bit, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, an, an, an easy one is like you take the line, which is. So let's say you play triplets and you accent the line. So so that's basic. Same thing would be you play triplets, but you double the triplets and then accent the line with singles. So like. Gotcha. So that's a great snare one. Another really good one is doing paradiddles. Um, like eighth note would be a paradiddle, quarter note would be a paradiddle diddle. So you have like 
So that's a great one. There's a, there's a million of them. But then going yeah. under the drum set, going under the drum set, so the basic one would be playing, let's say, you know, like jazz time, ding, ding, da, ding, ding, yeah. da, ding, hi hat two and four, and playing the line on the snare drum. Right. That, 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 that. And then from there, take the eighth note on the snare drum and do the quarter note on the bass drum. Mm-hmm. From there, do the whole thing on the bass drum. And then you could do like the bass drum and add triplets in between. So you're playing the line on the bass drum and you're putting triplets in between. And it really just goes on and on sure, and on and sure. on and on. Yeah. And so I know I know like a zillion ways to do it. And I'm always coming up with, with new crazy. But it's just like the never ending, really just that first page there. I mean, you could, if there was going to be one page out of any book that I, if I had to pick one page, Mm-hmm. It would be, you know, exercise one, page 38, syncopation. Right. And I probably spend more time on that page than anything because there's just infinite ways to work on your your four-way independence um, with that. And, it, and I, find that, I find that having the focus of you know, having to read a line, you know, incorporating these things as opposed to just improvising them is, is a good discipline. And then from there, you know, close the book up and... and uh, you know, again, and it's not meant to be used on the gig, but these are just like anything. These are tools to feel more comfortable. So when you, you know, when I get on stage and I'm playing music, I'm I completely forget about it. But you know that it's that muscle memory. It's there, and you, and it just gives you a um, more freedom. You know, it it seems like one of the things about your playing that was brought to the attention of of so many drummers when Two Princes first came out, for example, was your left hand, was the ghosting, was all those things. It, is that come from your experience studying jazz and, and all these other things? You know, it's funny. First of all, like, you know, I definitely learned a lot about that. I've always been a big fan of Bernard Purdy. Mm-hmm. And Purdy, Purdy uses ghost strokes a lot. Um, so I, I certainly, you know, and then I studied with Bernard, and he, we kind of honed in on that. But it's funny, because the first time I was ever brought to my attention was by my teacher in high school, Henry Oxdell. You noticed, he's like, you know, I noticed that your left hand is dragging. You're kind of, you have this lazy left hand in between your back beats. You're doing these, like, and he asked me if I was doing them on purpose. And I realized I wasn't. It was just sort of this, I don't know if it was something I was just doing because I was lazy or whether it was just some sort of subconscious sound thing. But but I he brought it to my attention, and from there I became aware of it and kind of developed it. And, um, and then I also became aware of it to not do it. Like, cause I think I was doing it. I have it. And then I, you know, I learned, okay, wait, like, let me develop this, but also, you know, you know, to, to not be lazy and, and do it all the time. So, you know, but it was something that's, uh, just kind of developed over the years. I mean, I think it's just a really, you know, if used properly, it's just a really nice way to you have a good sort of loping feeling in the groove, and um, right, right. Yeah, you know, so, so much you can do with it. Obviously, uh, it's interesting that um, you know it, it's it's been such a cool thing, and it's like a lot of us use that, and it kind of helps solidify a certain time feel and a groove. And uh, but there are times when it doesn't work, especially in the Absolutely. studio. It could be too much, you know. It's like yeah. they, they need space there, um, and and you forget it. It's like no, this is groovy. This is happening. But then that goes back to what we were talking about originally, creating this sonic landscape. And sometimes that stuff, as a drummer or maybe as in our practice room, this will be great. Just put some microphones on, hit record, and and, and let me play. It doesn't work. That it's not as simple as that. And I think I think it's it's you know I like to use an expression: play the drums, don't let the drums play you. Mm. And I think that generally, you know, 
this happens with all instruments. There's certain habits that we get into or certain little things that you that you find yourself doing without thinking about it. And it's yeah. important to become it's important to become aware of those and be able to control your playing. I think it's like there's a certain amount of just wanting to let yourself go and, and get in the moment. But you have to be it's you have to really be in control of your playing. And it's such a weird thing when you think about it because it's happening instantaneously. We're there and every note is just coming out of us and how do you what do you what do you think before the note? In a way you do. It's weird. It's such a quick you have to really be on your toes. So it mm-hmm. takes I think it's it's an important thing to think about when you're practicing and when you're playing. You don't want to overthink, but you want to control your instrument, you know, and that whole ghost stroke thing that you're talking about is a great example of that because it's something that you could very easily just get on the I certainly did when I was younger. It was a habit. I didn't even know I was doing it. Yeah. And I and I realized, okay, I gotta become aware of this because I got to not do that sometimes, you know? So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very important important aspect of of making music is, is being in control of it. You know, it's such a weird thing when you think about it, the distance of the amount of time between, you know, it's just coming at us instantaneously. Right. So it's, it's hard, you know? Yeah. There's one thing I, I, I noticed about your playing watching, especially the, uh, the blue note performance, that I notice in a lot of uh, some of my favorite drummers in in just the way they keep time is this movement in their body, the movement in their arms, and it's it, it's it feels better. It, 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 I'm creating a, a better time feel for everyone, and I'm wondering is that conscious? Are you are you aware of that that type of thing? I mean, not totally. I mean, I, the one thing that I try to be aware of more than anything is to stay relaxed. I think, you know, not just, not the tense. It's a very common thing with drummers. You know, we can happen to any of us at any point, not to tense up. So I try to, I try to hold my sticks in a relaxed way. I try to keep my body relaxed, breathe. Mm-hmm. Cause whenever I get tense, whenever you get tense and notice that you might be holding your sticks too tight, your body's tightening up, yeah. your playing starts to sound stiff. You know, you don't want that. And also it can damage your, that you can, it can lead to all kinds of physical problems too. Yes. So, I don't. I don't know if I can fully answer your question. I'm not. I just, at the same time, I'm not someone that's that hung up in like having the proper stick technique. I mean, I although I'm very, I practice my technique, and I'm I'm a practice study musician. I try to keep a have as much of a natural approach and not get too hung up on like okay, I'm, I'm holding a molar, I'm holding a German grip, or I'm doing this, or I'm doing right. that. I mean, because sometimes I look at my hands and I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is <laughs> fucked up, yeah. <laughs> But like you know, and I might I might be a little conscious of it. I, I might be conscious of that when I'm practicing a little bit. But when I'm playing, it's like you're going to do anything you can do to make the music sound good. So like you know, exactly. if you want to hold it with your teeth, like whatever it takes, you know. So, but you know, ultimately relaxation is the goal. I mean, and I know that I, I adren- a little bit of adrenaline is important. But when you have too much, you know, when you're too edgy or, or you're too tense, it, 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 it you know it, it can it can affect you. So it's just. It's, everybody has their own ways of dealing with it, I think, you know? Well, and I think that being able to record yourself and listen back and kind of be able to recognize some of those nuances that aren't always, we are, we're not always aware of in the moment helps us uh, see that from a third-person point of view. That helps yeah, us. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. Recording, recording yourself, I don't care what level you're on, whether you're a beginner and you're just practicing or whether you're experienced, I mean... 
recording yourself and listening back is is such a big a big important thing. Yeah. yeah. And the other the other the other thing I will say from a practice point of view is that you know playing practicing with a metronome to me is really really important. I mean, yeah. I, I I I try to use a metronome seventy five percent of the time when I'm practicing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I don't care what level you're on. You're not always aware of whether you're speeding up or slowing down and. I think it's a really good tool. No question about it. Where can people find out more about you, find your records, see where you're going to be? Well, all my records are on iTunes or any digital medium. You know, you can, uh, you can pick up my records there. There's a, you know, there's a, a lot, a decent amount of content on YouTube. Um, you know, the Blue Note show that we just did last Monday night is up on YouTube. If you just type in... Aaron Comas Blue Note. We had a really, really great gig the other night, so I'd recommend checking that out. It's a, yeah. it's a really good, exa- it's a really good example of of my plan. I, I tried to. This is my first fiftieth birthday record release show, and I, it's a, it's a really great example of of my plan because I'm I'm playing my own music with my own band where I'm really stretching, but then I also have two of my favorite artists that I work with, both Joan Osborne and James Maddox each performed two songs with me that night. So it's a, it was just a really amazing night and I'm really happy with the way it came out. And if you want to kind of get into my, it's a pretty broad scope of what I do in that, in that set. So I recommend checking that out if you're interested. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I have a website that, you know, isn't really that updated. It's got like a partial discography. Um, You know, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and that's probably the best way to keep up with where I'm playing. Although I usually don't, post maybe i'll post an hour before i go on stage but Um, (laughs) if it's an important gig i'll put like you know if it's something if it's a big deal i'll i'll give a nice little build up you know but um take this train and get here let's see we've got an hour yeah get here in an hour exactly (laughs) so you know um oh man it's been a pleasure talking to you of I mean, I've I've been aware of your 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 playing and, and 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 for so long now. It's just it's it's fun to to finally get a chance to get to know you better and uh, and all the things that you're doing um, and the the creative approach that you have to playing. It's just, it's been a joy to discover more about you, and I appreciate the time that you you're given us uh, to do this today. Well, thanks for having me. It's been nice chatting with you, and I. Uh... I, you gave a great interview. It was nice to cover a lot of a lot of uh, different kind of things today. With you, so I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Well, my my listeners keep me uh, keep me sharp. They're, they they have high expectations of us. <laughs> well, keep up keep up the good work. Thanks, Aaron, and keep in touch, man. And, uh, I, I hope that we yeah definitely. If I'm anytime I'm down there in Nashville or if you're up here in New York, reach out and we'll hang out. I, I'd love to meet you in person, man. It'd be a joy. All yeah. right, man. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Aaron. Have a great rest of the day, man. You too. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. So there you go, everybody. Uh, there was my conversation with Aaron. Uh, it was cool to catch up with somebody that I've been listening to off and on for over 20 years. And it's just crazy to think that now with the podcast where it is, to get a chance to talk to some of these people that seem so distant and I, I hope that listening to these interviews, you feel the same way I do, kind of getting uh, a, an inside chance to get to know some of these people that we've uh, been listening to and, and emulating 
and uh, been inspired by. And Aaron is just one of those guys. And uh, again, I want to thank Chris DeGiralamo again from Two for the Show for making that connection. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's episode. Uh, many thanks to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance in helping keeping this podcast rocking online and otherwise. And thank you all so much for listening, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye. Thank you.